Tonight's reading is taken from 1 Corinthians 11, verses 2 to 16. Um, and I just want to second what Judy said. I found doing a Bible study about all this sort of stuff really helpful, really challenging, um, and a really useful way to think through things, so I would recommend. But 1 Corinthians 11. Now, I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head uncovered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. This is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory, for her hair was given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Catherine. Thank you, Jody, so much. Um, we're into 1 Corinthians chapter 11 now, and we had a, a good night the other night on the gender matters all in. Um, and I, I uh, this is quite incredible stuff. And actually, some of it really grates with us in the 21st century West. Some of this stuff in the Bible really grates because it challenges right to our very core. It, it challenges our worldview. It challenges how we see ourselves. It goes right to the core. And what we're left doing is asking, is this God's word? Therefore, is it true or is it not? That is what we have to do. That is the only question that we have to answer tonight. Is this God's word or is it not? Is this God speaking or is it not? Why don't we pray and ask for God's help? Heavenly Father, your word is truth. And Father, we pray that we grasp what is in here and Lord, that our lives would line up with what is there. Lord, we pray that we would submit. Lord, we pray that we would hear. Thank you so much for the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you that he is the ruler, that he is the king. Lord, we pray that we would submit to him. Please help us to grasp what is here in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. As if uh, I wasn't taking my life into my own hands this evening enough, we have decided to have a bit of a Q&A afterwards. Um, and this is the way to ask the questions, and please do feel free um, during the talk to kind of go online to slido.com. Forget the, the forward slash there, slido.com, you'll find it, and that's the code UCGender, UCGender. And the way we're going to do the Q&A is we're going, to have, we're going to finish the service, and then we're going to have more tea and coffee for about 15 or so minutes, 20 or so minutes, and we'll remain in this building just hanging around and uh, we'll try and answer some of the questions that'll come in. Go easy on me, please go easy on me. Um, I'm sensitive sort of chap, um, as you can imagine. <clears throat> I don't know how you've come to church this evening thinking of gender. I don't know how you've come to church this evening thinking, what do Christians think 
about gender. I think probably, particularly over this last number of years, Christianity, Christians have not had a great good press in relation to gender. The Christians' views on gender, and women particularly, are all outdated, outmoded, irrelevant, and nasty. Nasty particularly about women. The men in the church, who are of course the ruling class, they're repressive, patronizing, horrible in fact. That's how the church and its leadership is considered wicked, in fact. The men who dominate the power structures of the church are derogatory to the women. They keep them suppressed. They keep them silent. They keep them off the big councils. There are not many women bishops. There are not many women senior elders. There are not many women moderators. There are not many women so on and so forth. And therefore, it's a basic underlying hatred of women. And of course, Paul said it first. Here is what an atheist says about the church's attitudes towards women. Any honest thinking person reading through the Bible cannot ignore the blatant misogyny and barbarity towards women. The eminent men of God who wrote the Bible were the violent of a patriarchal, tribal, violent, intolerant society. They reflect the ignorance and brutality of that society. It is no accident that from the very beginning, the Bible cements women's inferior status. It is time women saw the Bible for what it is, a man-made primitive revelation. No woman with a shred of self-esteem would want to demean herself by bowing to such a tyrannical and self-effacing absolutes. Every time a woman submits to such demotion, she throws away her self-worth. Women's self that should be self-worth. Woman's self-worth is anathema to fundamentalists who accuse women of being selfish and unforgiving. Vula Pappas, a woman, then references this particular passage, along with others in the New Testament, particularly Paul's view on women. This passage has caused quite a bit of consternation, quite a bit of stir. And remember, Please do feel free to ask the questions. As I said, we'll be answering them a bit later on. Gender privilege. It is thought that, of course, one gender is privileged in the gender wars within the church, that there's no real place for women. There's certainly no significant equality. There's chat about equality. There's chat about moving towards that, but it's all just chat. So what do we have here in 1 Corinthians chapter 11? Well, I want to say that there are some parts of the Bible that are hard for us to understand. And so just over this next wee while, I want you to engage your mind. I want you to think. I also want you to engage your heart because there are some parts of the Bible not only difficult to understand, they're hard for us to accept because we would rather live our way. We would rather build our own worldview and not let God interfere with that. So there's some parts of the Bible that are hard to understand. There's some parts of the Bible that are hard to accept. And some of the things, some of the, the, the glossary this evening as we look at this passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, I, I want you to, to have your attention drawn to one or two things. And if you've got a Bible in front of you, it'd be really good if you turn to 1 Corinthians 11, 2 to 16. 
And just bear these things in mind as we go along in the talk. The first is, there's a bit of a play on the word head in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. You may have noticed it. You may have wondered what he's saying. It seems that he's using the word in two different ways. Well, he uses the word in two different ways, believe it or not. A bit of a play on the word. The word is the same in Greek, but it references God, head, boss, ruler, and it references head, the thing on the top of your shoulders. And you'll see how Paul does this in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. You'll see that he's talking about dishonoring heads, that is, God, or dishonoring heads, that is, this thing, the ball on the top of your shoulders. So there's a bit of a play on a word here, and you have to read this carefully, or you have to read this in a way that will certainly give some credence to that, that the word head needs to be understood in its context. The second is the word freedom. Freedom is a big thing in 1 Corinthians. The Christians believed themselves to be free. They were free from, well, really any significant expectations. They were free from the things that hinder the body. They were in the spiritual realm, and they aimed towards freedom. Freedom from other people. Freedom from, well, we'll call them rules. Freedom from certain expectations. They believed that they had achieved it all, that they had arrived, the Corinthians. When it came to the issue of gender, what's going on in Corinth, I think clearly from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, is that the women, and indeed the men, had kind of relinquished the things that were composite to being one or other of those genders. Free from their own particular gender distinction. Free from their own particular selves as they were made by God. So freedom, not a healthy or good thing in the First Corinthians sense. So play on word, head, freedom, and then authority. So who is our authority? What is our authority? How does the word work in First Corinthians? Well, it's connected to this idea of head, so that whenever we read, for example, in chapter uh, 11, verse 3, but I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Some will interpret the word head to mean source, comes from. But I want you to understand verse 3. I want you to understand that the source, origin, of every man is Christ. That the origin of a wife or source of a wife is her husband. That the head of Christ is God. Some will interpret it that way, meaning it's just got to do with source. That word, of course, is used in that particular way in the New Testament. We talk about the head of a river, where the river starts. A river flows, and its head, its source, comes from there. So, I think the full impact of 1 Corinthians chapter 11 is removed, though, by that particular understanding. Paul is talking about authority. Paul 
is talking about headship. Paul is talking about order, that God's universe has been given an order. And you see it here very clearly, particularly verse 4, sorry, verse 3. So, what is going on? Don't forget your questions. First thing is that there's a shaming of the head, that the head is shamed. First of all, through a man having his head covered. Let me read from verse 2. Make sure you track this in your Bibles uh, to see the logic, because there is logic in here. Now, I commend you, Paul says, because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. Paul passes on traditions. There are several in 1 Corinthians. There's one in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. There's one in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 towards the end, and then one here. He passes on the things that he has been given by God. I pass on the traditions, even as I delivered them to you. Verse 3, but I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. So there's an order. This is inescapable. The head of every man is Christ. That's humanity. The head of everyone, Christ is over everyone. Christ is the ruler. Christ is the boss. Jesus is the king, ruler over everything. Every man is Christ. The head, you see that order? And then he goes to husband and wife. The head of a wife is who? Her husband. And the head of Christ is God. Now, that is particularly the middle part of that is particularly controversial, isn't it? The head of a wife is her husband. The boss, the ruler of a wife is her husband. That's radical stuff, isn't it? That's not the kind of stuff you read in Vogue, unless Vogue is under different management. I don't think you ever will. The head of a wife is her husband. Now, Please, you've got to track with this and don't close your mind to it because the logic is impeccable and the logic has worked here. And it's not that Paul simply is speaking out of his own misogyny, his own hatred of women, because Paul did not hate women. Christ did not hate women. Christ was not a misogynist. Paul, in Christ's form, in Christ's shape, in Christ's example, is himself not a misogynist, not a hater of women. So, just for a moment, suspend your suspicion and skepticism around the Apostle Paul and just listen. Give him a fair hearing this evening. I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Christ obeyed the Father. Christ willingly gave up his life for the sake of you and me. He died on the cross for our sin, for our rebellion. Christ willingly did this. He submitted to the Father's will as Christ. So, you get that order. Head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband. 
and the head of Christ is God. But within the church in Corinth, there's a shaming of the head by shaming the head. Shaming the head through verse 4. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. Who is his head? It is Christ. Verse 3 is the key to understand what is going on here. So by praying or prophesying with his head covered, that is noggin, that is the thing, the ball on the top of the shoulders, every man who prays or prophesies with head covered dishonors his head. Christ is being dishonored through the covering of the head. Clearly, both genders are involved in public speaking ministries and roles within the church at Corinth. Clearly, that is what is going on. This business about having one's head covered is not really a problem for us. Now, we do cover our heads fairly regularly because we live in Northern Ireland and snow is never too far away. We, we wear hats. But that is just to avoid the head cold or the wrecking of one's hair. That's what happened to me. There was about a, like a four-month period. I didn't wear a hat. And one or two bad gusts of wind. There was a storm that year, and it just all disappeared, just in case you're wondering. No, that's not true, just by the way. So we, we don't have this same particular thing about head coverings that the Corinthians did. So women's heads were covered. Wives' heads were covered. That was a mark of femininity, whereas men, a mark of masculinity, did not have their heads covered. So when you saw a human being with a head covering, that's a woman. When you see a human being without their head covered, that's a man. That's what it looked like back then. That's what it was back then. So the covering of the head for females was indicative of femininity. It was a gender role being described by the headpiece, by the head garment. And the man who would cover his head dishonors his head, that is Christ. Covers his head, dishonors his head. See what's going on there? So in a man praying or prophesying, I'm prophesying here just for kind of glossary, glossary purposes, just for understanding purposes, is the Spirit-inspired speaking of the Word of God. God has already said these things, but it's the Spirit-inspired speaking of the Word of God within the church family. So, for example, it might be you saying to your neighbor later on over tea and coffee, maybe they're a bit discouraged, a bit down, a bit worried, it's you bringing a word that God has already said to them and encouraging them or challenging them. Maybe saying, doesn't Jesus say, do not worry? You might engage in that kind of thing. Chapter 14's got a lot of that sort of stuff going on. In it. So the praying, we know what that is, talking to God, talking to God publicly, speaking publicly in the church gathering whenever they've gathered together in Corinth. 
Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. Then verse 5. Every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. Now, this is so strange for us, isn't it, today? This is just so odd for us today. It's kind of bizarre. We don't get it. Because it's not part of our world. It's not part of our kind of 21st century. So what is going on here? Every wife, this is the wife in the church family, every wife who prays or prophecies with her head uncovered, that is just uncovered, dishonors her head. Who is her head? Well, verse 3 tells us. Her husband, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. Now, there's been a lot of ink spilt and printer ink spilt and internet searches spilt, whatever the equivalent is for internet searches, on this particular topic. What's going on here? Well, there are a number of different things. So, for example, in the Old Testament, that if a woman, a wife, was caught in adultery, she should be brought in front of the priest, and her shame would be that her head covering would be removed, and possibly, in some cases, her hair cut off so that she would be bald. So there's a resonance there, possibly, to the Old Testament. There's also the potential that within Corinth, and just this is one possibility, within Corinth, there are a number of temples we've talked about. I think Peter talked about it last week. We've talked about that a number of weeks ago. A number of temples in Corinth. And one of the way temples funded themselves, remember this is a port city, in fact a two-port city, one on either end of the peninsulas, was that there'd be temple prostitutes would go out into the city every night. Something like 3,000 temple prostitutes in the city of Corinth. And they were marked by uncovered heads. In some cases, in fact in most cases, shaven heads. It could be a shawl. Is it a particular kind of headpiece? Some kind of hat? Is that what's intimated here? Well, we're not exactly sure what it is. It may have been a shawl which was part of the garments and worn kind of, you see, Middle Eastern countries with um, kind of female with these, females with these garments that they just slip over onto the head if they're out in public and kind of, in some cases, cover the face as well. Is it hair? Is it a hair bun? What is it? What is precisely described here? Well, it's hard to know exactly. But what's the bigger point? The bigger point is that the gender distinctions were not being adhered to within Corinth. Androgeneity, it seems, was the order of the day for the church in Corinth. This church had imagined itself to be free from all earthly expectation free from the, the rule, if you like, of the body, the limitations of the body. It's imagined, isn't it, for them that, you know, the body was the thing that held the soul, indeed held the soul back 
androgeneity, gender distinctions, were being suppressed. Women were not looking like women. Men were not looking like men. And this is what's going on in verse 5. Every wife who prays or prophecies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. For since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut her off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. This is Paul's commendation. Paul's commendation here is that women look like women. Men look like men. Now, does this relate to our culture today? Our trans culture today? Our androgynous, gender androgynous culture today? So, the shaming the head through shaming the head. There's also showing the truth in what is worn. Have a look. Verse number 7. For if a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority in her head because of the angels. Now, I'm not going to ask how many people in the room are a bit shocked by that last statement, because of the angels, wear a hat because of the angels. We will come on to that. But what Paul does is he reaches right back into the recesses of the Old Testament. And he proves to us that this is not just his idea that this is not just hard-nosed Paul, legalistic Paul, misogynistic Paul. He says, no, no, this is creational. This goes right back to the Garden of Eden, to our very beginnings. And he stretches right back to the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 2, in fact. This is what Paul does every time he discusses gender, every time indeed that he discusses human sexuality, where does he go? He goes right back to our very earliest days. And he's doing that here, verse 7. For a man ought not to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God. What does that mean, image and glory of God? Well, we're made in God's image, the Bible says. We're made in God's image. And the making of us shows that God has exuded his glory and proves that God has exuded his glory in what he has made. We're made in God's image, bringing glory to God. We are the glory of God. We're the image of God. Right back to Genesis. In fact, Genesis chapter 2 helps us understand the next words from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Verse 8, for man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Now, you probably can't read that, but here is just a reminder. Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. Then the Lord God said, it's not good that the man should be alone. I'll make a helper fit for him. Now, out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. 
The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens, to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. That's established right from the very first pages of the Bible. Here is the order. Woman is made for man to be a helper, not to be a servant of man. Sorry, guys. This is not about a wife providing your slippers and your pipe whenever you come home from work at night after a hard day's work. There may indeed be many of you men who think that's what marriage is. You will serve me, wife. No, not a helper for you. A helper in the service of what is it? This is Genesis chapter 2. This is God making Adam, then Eve, in order to rule the world in God's image under God. This is the work in the garden. You see the order? And Paul just picks up on that. What is the order? Well, verse 8, for man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither, verse 9, was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. What was happening in Corinth, what was happening in the Corinthian church, influenced entirely by the culture around them, is that women believed themselves to be absolutely just identical to men. In fact, shaking off the, the marks of their humanity and not looking like a woman, rather looking like a man. And even when we get to chapter 14, acting like a man. What is that a mark of? Well, you can find out if you read Genesis chapter 3. What happened? We'll not turn to that now, but what happened in Genesis chapter 3 is that the serpent came to Eve and tempted her. Eve listened to the serpent, God's creation, not God. She was persuaded by God's creation, the serpent, whom we know is Satan, to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and to disobey God. And then the rest, as they say, is history. And men, I guarantee you that most of you are thinking here, oh, typical woman, weak, pathetic, easily fooled, wouldn't you know? Where was the man at this point? Where was Adam at this point? Right beside her. What did he say at this point? Nothing. What did he do at this point? Did he protect his wife? No. What a terrible thing that Adam did. He did not protect his wife, the one from whom 
well, who was brought out of man. He didn't protect her. That's our fault. So, showing the truth. Showing the truth, there's order in creation. Established in verse 3. Established from Genesis chapter 1, Genesis chapter 2. Order in creation. And we're created to be codependent. Have a look at verse 11. Well, well hang on, I'm kind of avoiding the because of the angels thing. Do you, want to, do you want to pick that up in the Q&A? Or just very briefly, I can talk about it. Very, very briefly. What does this mean? Well, we're not exactly sure what this means. There are different opinions. But I think I argue would argue that the symbol of authority on the head, and the word I guess symbol I trust is in most of your Bibles, symbol of authority in the head for the woman, is indicative to the angels that there is an order in creation, and therefore do not fall angels as the angels observe. The angels, as you know, rebelled against God. Satan was an angel, and he rebelled against God. And if you like, if the angels, I think maybe Paul is getting at this, there are other interpretations, other ideas, but I just wonder, is Paul getting at, do not trip the angels up, women. Do not trip them up, cause them to stumble, cause them to sin, because they see this act of rebellion in not looking like a woman, women, and not looking like your gender. So we're a symbol of authority, which in that time was what it was, a head covering because of the angels. Created, verse 11, 12, to be codependent. Men are not independent of women. Women are not independent of men. Have a look, verse 11. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. This, perhaps, was what was going on. This is the early feminist movement. Burn the bra. We don't need men the women may have been saying. We don't need men, the Christian women may have been saying. We can do it on our own. We don't need them. They hold us back. Paul says, nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman. See this? See how this work works? And all things are from God. Created to be co-dependent. Men and women are equal. Absolutely equal. But not the same. Men and women are equal. But they are different. And if you want to repeat Eden, just do what Eve did. Eve in leading her husband, in leading this man. If you want to look like the Garden of Eden and you want to repeat the fall, that's how to do it. Men and women are equal, but they are different. I think you'll probably want to pick that up in the Q&A. Then finally, why ought this to be the way? Well, because it's appropriate. Verse number 13. 
judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? The assumption is that men and women are speaking in church, that that men and women are involved in the kind of together times whenever the Christians gather. That's the assumption, and you'll see this later on. The assumption is that they are praying, that they are prophesying, that they are using their mouths, and they're speaking up. But in such a way that they're indicating their femininity. Verse 13, judge for yourselves, is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Here is the appropriate question. It is appropriate that they do. Verse 14, does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? If a man doesn't look like a man, there isn't a precise kind of hairdressing guide in the Bible that kind of maybe a, a, a kind of a, a help to understand First Corinthians appendix in the Bible that tells us exactly the right length for man's hair. There isn't that. What this is driving at is that the men will look like men, that the men look like men, identifiable as men, that they look their gender, that women look their gender. Verse 14, does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory? You see, it's obvious. This is Paul's point. Look what you are. Do not cause confusion in your dress. Do not deliberately reduce the aspect, the defining aspect of your gender. For her hair is, verse 15, her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone, verse 16, is inclined to be contentious, we have no other such practice, nor do the churches of God. This is commonplace. So Corinth might think of themselves as really special. We're really, really special. And Paul is pulling them back and saying, no, look, the churches in Philippi, the church in churches in Galatia, the church in everywhere. This is what's going on. So don't set yourselves apart. Which for the Corinthians would have been a very likely thing that they would have done because of their attitude of themselves. They viewed themselves in their arrogance as spiritually mature, but they weren't. They were immature. So what does this mean for us today? What does it mean that all of the females in the building ought to wear a hat? I I don't think that that is the answer. I don't think that's how this is to be understood. Does that mean we need to rush out and go to the shop across the road or one at the end of the Lisbon Road and get the best kind of quality hat? Well, I don't think that's what's being driven at here at all. This was a cultural, at the time, expression of femininity. What's ours today? Well, it is in the very essence of not reducing our gender or how we're to look, and in attitude. Wives, submit to your husbands. Paul says this in Ephesians chapter 5. Wives, follow the lead of your husband. In the church family, what's it to look like? 
Well, it's women follow the lead of the men. Remembering that Christ is over everyone. And whenever you're thinking of marriage, and I guess not everyone here this evening is married, whenever you're thinking of marriage, what are the questions you need to ask yourself in terms of a wife, potential wife, or husband, potential husband? Is, for example, if you are a man and you're looking for a wife, what is the basic fundamental spiritual question that you ask? Could I love this woman as Christ loves the church? That means, and you read this in Ephesians chapter 5, dying for her. Could you you have in yourself that you can see the potential I could die for this woman. For, for women, as you're looking for a husband, what are you looking for? Could you, I guess, from Ephesians chapter 5, could you follow the lead of someone who loves you as much as Christ loves the church? In the church family, what is going on? Well, men step up lovingly and in a godly way, lead Women, step up, and in a loving and in a godly way, exercise your ministries, exercise your teaching ministries, teach and invest and invest and invest in other women that you are leaving such a godly, incredible, mission-focused, evangelistic culture and mindset and legacy that this whole world will be reached. You know, some of the most powerful women over the years, over the centuries, in terms of the kingdom of God, have been women. Some of the most powerful women have been women, of course. Yes, some of the powerful. But some of the most powerful, impacting, and incredibly kind of effective work has been done by the mothers of some of the men who've come to know Jesus. Like, for example, Augustine, who was a wild boy. St. Augustine, St. Augustine of Hippo, he was a wild boy. For years and years and years and years, his mother prayed for him. And he was converted. Powerful. Incredible. Missionary movements. Honestly, sacrificial giving. Who supported Jesus' ministry? Women supported Jesus' ministry. They put their hands into their pockets, into their purses, and paid for Jesus to do his ministry and the disciples of his ministry. They followed him. They spoke of him. They trusted him. So what about us? Well, we'll tease some more out in the Q&A. If you've got some questions, don't forget the Q&A afterwards. There'll be about a 15-minute break or so after um, service ends. And then we'll just hang back here and we'll take some of those questions. Maybe you've got some questions that you'd like to ask, but not during the Q&A or some comments to make. Please do fill out the Getting Connected or Welcome to Church card in your pew there. We'll take just a couple of minutes now uh, as we do that. I will close by praying if there are some questions or comments you want to make. If you'd like to meet up sometime to have a, a debate, a discussion, we'd love to do that. You can buy the coffee. Those Welcome to Church cards are only seen by myself or Peter, um, but we'd certainly love to pick up some of the things that are said this evening. God loves us, and God has shown us his love, and Jesus proved that love when he willingly went in submission to the Father to the cross for our sins. That's such great news, isn't it? Why don't we conclude? Heavenly Father,
We thank you for your word. We thank you that you love us. We thank you that you've given us what we need to know in order to get to know you. Father, as we deal with the issue of gender in the world around us, Lord, as we deal with the issue of gender in our church, Heavenly Father, we pray that we be godly, Christ-like, submitting to your word. And we pray, Lord, that as a result of all of this, many may hear, many may see, and many may come to know the Lord Jesus Christ as their own Savior. So, Father, we pray that you would apply your word, take your word, and teach us. In Jesus' name. Amen.